We have two readings this morning from the book of Leviticus. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. From Leviticus 19, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly, assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. Oh, you gotta love a good neighbor. I've got all kinds of stories I could tell about neighbors we've had over the years. I'll share one of my favorites. And this is a story that unfortunately Melissa and I heard the morning after these events happened. Or maybe fortunately, you can be the judge. So our neighbors next door uh, one night, I guess the, it was a father and a son, and the son was probably early high school at the time when I think about it, and uh, his father bought him this new airsoft gun. 
and he was out, uh, I guess, showing him how it works. And it looks like a real handgun, and it sounds really loud, and so he's out showing him how to, how to work this or whatever. Um, so basically what happened, as Melissa and I were, you know, tucked cozily in our basement watching a movie that night, is that our neighbors got a knock on the door. And when he went to, uh, to open the door, he was surrounded by a SWAT team. So apparently, someone had been walking by, seeing him standing on the front porch with a child shooting a gun into the air and called the police. There's a crazy man in, at this house and he's firing this gun around. So they came and he's telling us the story the next day the kid is and he's just like, oh my gosh, it's like they were in the bushes, they were surrounding the house, it was insane. It's like the, that scene from Christmas Vacation right at the end, right? Anyways, it's great to have neighbors that give you good stories like that. Keeps life interesting. When it comes to your neighbors, you never know what you're going to get. That's one of the great things. As we continue our series in Leviticus, we're going to talk about how to be a good neighbor. That's what this morning is about. Now, last week I spent a whole lot of time talking about animal sacrifices, and this morning I promise I will try to keep the bloodshed to a minimum. But Leviticus is primarily a priestly book. It's instructions on how to lead God's people in worship, how people are to approach God and how they're to live their lives. Now, these Israelites had just been freed from slavery. We talked about this last week. But they weren't set free from slavery just to do whatever they wanted or live however they wanted. They were set free to show the world what true freedom looks like and to become a channel for God to flow through. Here we are on this Remembrance Day, and I was thinking about how this passage from Leviticus, so these two passages we're going to be exploring, they really answer the question, what does it take for a community to live together in peace? And I feel like if, if people and if nations would take the advice that we're going to be exploring this morning and that we've already heard read to us, I think peace is within our grasp. So we're going to start with the first passage that was read, comes from Leviticus chapter 6, and it begins, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord, and then there's a list of all kinds of different ways that you can be unfaithful. Maybe you're guilty of deceiving, or maybe you're guilty of stealing, or maybe you're guilty of cheating or lying. Now for starters, the word translated sin is actually an archery term. The, the original word would be accurately defined as miss the mark. So you're trying to do something and you fail at it. You take the bow and arrow, you aim, you don't hit the mark. That's what this word sin means. So if anyone misses the mark, if anyone aims at something and misses and is unfaithful to the Lord, this is what they're we're supposed to do. Because there's a way that we are created to live. And basically, anything on this list is not it. So when you are guilty of deceiving someone, it's like you missed the mark. When you steal from someone, nope, not what you were created to do. When you cheat, nope, not how you were created to live. When you lie to someone, nope, that's not how you interact with people around you. This is not how humans were created to live. Now, we certainly feel that way when we're the one who's been offended. I mean, if someone cheats us or deceives us or lies to us, we know that that's wrong. We know that this is not good and this is not how the world should be, but somehow, only if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we might be able to admit that when we're the offender, it feels wrong too. We kind of know that this is not right. There's something off about the way that I'm living. So perhaps we could read that first sentence this way. If anyone falls short of the way that they're created to live, this is what you're supposed to do. Because we are created with purpose, and with purpose comes responsibility. And a responsibility to reflect the image of God and to be a blessing to the world. That's what Moses was relaying to the Israelites. You are not just to be able to do whatever you want, but you're to reflect the image of God in your life and you're to be a blessing to the world around you, to the neighbors and the aliens in your midst. This passage talks about deceiving a neighbor 
about something entrusted to you or left in your care. And I think something important is, is pointed out about the human, the human race here is this idea that we, we need one another, right? Like, the reason that your neighbor would entrust something to your care is that they can't take care of it in their own, or they need some assistance, or they have something else they have to tend to. And so there's this, right at the beginning, there's this idea of the fact that we need one another, we need to lean on one another, we need to trust one another. And so many of the things that are reflected in this first passage from Leviticus 6 are breaking that trust. Someone needs to trust you, and you can't be trustworthy. How are you going to get along? How are you going to live at peace with that? Now, sometimes people leave something in your care and it doesn't go well. I was thinking, obviously, with all the snow out, it's time for neighbors to start pulling out their snow blowers. And, and uh, I'm fortunate to have neighbors on both sides of me who own snow blowers, and it's great. Although one time I had a really awkward situation where a neighbor over here, sometimes they'll blow your driveway for you. And this time he came over and he, he gave me a snow blower and said, you can just use it. Just, and I'm just like, you're so generous. And he's like, yeah, you just, you turn, you pull this back and then you yank the cord. And I was like, awesome. And he goes inside and I turn the crank and I, and I pulled the cord and it snapped. And so I had to push, they're heavy when they're not on, push this stupid heavy snowblower back to our neighbor's house and say, I broke it. Like, so anyways, um, but breaking something that your neighbor entrusts you isn't in the list in Deuteronomy 6, so that was okay. But this part of what neighbors do, and he was very gracious, he was like, ah, oh, it's an old thing anyways, you know, I need to replace it, you know, it's all good. But there's this aspect that there's this give and this take, we need to give to one another, we need to receive from one another, and then when we, when we break that down, when we break that trust, you know, how can we live at peace? It just doesn't work. Any talk about what it means to be human has to acknowledge the need for us to live in a symbiotic relationship with one another. We need one another, and if we need one another, we've got to make sure that we are building these relationships in healthy ways. Failure to acknowledge this and to live in response only diminishes our humanity. But right off the top, we come face to face with the fact that our shortcomings have ramifications that stretch beyond the actions themselves. We may think, well, I'm just looking out for number one here, but it's more than that. Because in distancing ourselves from our neighbor, we distance ourselves from God. It's this interesting kind of phrasing, right? If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord. So we're unfaithful to God when we let our neighbor down when we break that trust, that bond between neighbors. Miroslav Volf writes that a faith that makes a difference is a faith that helps us discern and motivates us to do what is right and excellent. A faith that makes a difference nudges us to work out of love, not just for ourselves, but for our near and distant neighbors as well. In other words, a faithful life is demonstrated by the way that we treat one another. There's this interesting thing that uh, you may have picked up on in the reading, that when someone kind of is brought out as doing something wrong or they confess to doing something wrong, it says they might make, must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And here is there's an acknowledgement of the cost of the offense. It's not a penalty. The interesting thing is like in the passage just a little longer, it says, you know, so as a penalty for this offense, you got to bring your guilt offering, that ram or bull or whatever you're going to sacrifice to the Lord. That's the penalty. But this restitution is just saying, not only have you stolen your neighbor's cattle or their grain or whatever else you've done, not only have you taken something, but you have actually broken trust with that person, so you're going to add a fifth of whatever it is you took to give back to that person to try to make up for some of the trust that has been lost in whatever was taken or in whatever deception that there was. There is a relational cost when we let our neighbor down. 
In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things that they did that made them guilty. And so notice how the offense is cleared up, both with a neighbor and with God simultaneously. And this reminds me of a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see a number of references to the Sermon on the Mount here uh, from Leviticus uh, chapter 6 and 19. So right here, Jesus says at one point, um, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you picture all of these things we talked about last week, people bringing their offerings, bringing their gifts they're up to the altar. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you're supposed to bring this offering, but if you have a broken relationship with someone, you just leave your gift there and go fix that relationship because there's no point in trying to fix your relationship with God if you have a broken relationship with your neighbor. So if you wrong another person, you have an issue with them, but you also have an issue with God. And an act of restitution clears the path for restoring your relationship to God. So we skip ahead a few chapters then to Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. It begins, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And really everything that follows has to come in this context. This way that we're being called to live is because of who God is. This is who I am, God says, so you should live accordingly. And so everything that, that follows is in that line. Now, chapter 19 in my Bible, it has these little headings everywhere, and the heading for chapter 19 says, various laws. Now, if you were to like, just open the Bible and look for a great passage to read, you probably wouldn't stop there and say, ooh, various laws, that sounds like a great chapter. It's only slightly more interesting than an earlier chapter in Leviticus, regulations about infectious skin diseases. It's probably less likely that you would read that chapter. But who's going to pick up on these rules, and what's with all these rules anyway? We hate rules. We hate laws, except for the fact, this is very interesting, that one of the best-selling books of 2018 is a book by a Canadian author named Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Life. Like, millions of people are buying this book. It's like, oh my goodness, there are rules? Let me find out about them. Isn't that strange? Like, you'd think that in our culture, people would be like, I don't want any rules. I want to do whatever I want. And yet, millions of people are saying, please, give me some rules for life. I got to figure this out. My life's a mess. And he says something very interesting. He talks about these rules and, and why people need to take them seriously. He says, if we each live properly, we will collectively flourish. Now, Jordan Peterson definitely has a thing for the Old Testament. He loves kind of the stories and the narratives uh, found in the Old Testament. And I think that he's trying to maybe in some kind of way repeat what Leviticus 19 is doing. Because Leviticus 19 is saying, you have to live this way as individuals, and if you all live this way as individuals, you will collectively flourish as a nation. And not only will you collectively flourish as a nation, but if the whole nation is living this way and flourishes, then the nation will actually get to be a blessing to the whole world. That's how it works. It doesn't start with a big project that everyone does. It starts with what you do as an individual. Every single person as an individual taking this seriously, living their life seriously, loving the neighbors and aliens in their midst. And so, Leviticus 19. Uh, verses 9 and 10 here. We're going to pick up at the beginning of this long list of various laws. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So I like this passage for a few different reasons. First one is I like the end of the verse. 
It's like as if God is anticipating the question. He's like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And it's like people saying, like, why? Why can't I do those things? And he ends it. He answers the question, I am the Lord your God. That's why you don't do it, all right? But I want to talk about why you wouldn't do this, because it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us. Like, why is this included on this, this list of things that we're supposed to do? Well, this is the first in a long list of laws that were meant to shape this nomadic tribe into the kind of people through whom all peoples on earth can be blessed. And so let's skip ahead 200 years-ish to the story of Ruth. And so we have a young woman named Ruth from a neighboring tribe, the Moabites, so someone outside of the tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel, and she travels to Bethlehem following the death of her husband. We can pick up her story in Ruth chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, this is her mother-in-law, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So here we have this foreigner who makes her way into this place, this region of Bethlehem, and she has no family there. She has no way of making a living. But because 200 years earlier, God made this law that you have to leave the leftovers in your field. And when you pick the grapes, if you missed a few, you got to leave them there. Because God made that law 200 years earlier, Ruth, this foreigner, totally disconnected from Israel, is able to go into this field and pick up the leftovers and have enough to eat. Man, that's powerful. This is random law but it saves someone's life. Now, the owner of these fields, Boaz, shows up and is evidently taken to Ruth. Um, he encourages her to continue to gather the leftovers with a promise that she will be safe. After inviting her to lunch, he secretly gives some new instructions to his workers. So he takes Leviticus 19 and he expands on it. He says, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from her, from the bundle, and leave them for her to pick up. So it's like you're like gathering all the harvest and like, oops, dropped one. You know, he's like, yeah, let's take it a step further here. The law says don't pick up the extra. Actually, I think we should try to leave some good stuff for her because she's mighty fine. Now, as the story goes, as all good stories go, Ruth and Boaz are married and become the one-day great-grandparents of none other than King David, who was an ancestor of none other than Jesus. Once again, if we each live properly, we will collectively flourish. A random law, but when people take it to heart, it changes people's lives. In some cases, it could change history. Now back to Leviticus. So that's just the first of these various laws, and I'm not going to spend that long on all of them. But you can see how the power of, of God was calling the people to live. So what we find here in Leviticus are a lot of things that we would say, yeah, obviously. Like, when we read this list, we're like, obviously. Like, of course, I wouldn't do any of these things. But what we have to remember is that this was written a long time ago. And what we have here, historians will say, this is a highly advanced ethical code for its time. That the things that were challenged here, this was going above and beyond what saying neighboring nations would have been living like. This is how to live well with others. And so, verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Simple precepts, but they challenge head-on any self-centered way of living. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. As if it wasn't enough to deceive someone, because that's already a law, you can't do that. People would use God as a way to manipulate others. You think of it today, people use the phrase, like, I swear to God. 
or you know, something like that, or I swear on the Bible, or some kind of thing to try to, to, to prove that they, they really mean what they're saying, and people were using God as a tool to their own advantage. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. This is a reflection of it. You shall not, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord, God, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. It's this interesting phrase, right? Like some, you might fool someone else, and they may not think you're guilty, but God won't hold you guiltless. He knows what's going on. And then once again, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, um, this is uh, another passage that Jesus refers to. Uh, so Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord, right? So he's referring back to Leviticus. So this is the law, don't break your oath. But I say, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So Jesus takes it up a notch. In Leviticus, the law is like, don't, don't deceive someone by swearing. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Don't swear by anything. Not just God, just by anything at all. Just be honest. Just be a trustworthy person. And you won't have to play these silly games with people. Verse 13, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Well, again, for us, we look and say, well, the robbery piece, that's obvious. I mean, we shouldn't steal things from other people. That kind of makes sense. But what about holding back a worker's pay for a day? I bet that everyone in this room who is employed, I bet very few, if anyone in this room, gets paid the same day you work, right? Like maybe you get paid at the end of a week or at the end of every two weeks or at the end of a month or something. So what is this rule for? Well, what kind of person would need to be paid at the end of a day? A person who didn't have enough money to live from one day to the next. And so we have someone in a position of power or privilege, someone, this employer, who's employing people. And for this employer, what does it matter? Like, they don't need to be paid every day. They've got lots of money. So they think, well, it doesn't matter if I don't pay this person. And so you're not taking into consideration the needs of another person. Is it possible that we're naive to the challenges of our neighbors? Again, this law is expanded upon in Deuteronomy 24, verse 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Something that doesn't matter to me might matter a lot to someone else. And if we're naive to that and if we ignore the needs of the people around us, then they might cry out to God. Verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Well, come on. Like, that's just cruel. Who would do that? Like, curse a person who can't even hear you or put a stumbling block in front of someone who can't see. That's terrible. Evidently, maybe people were doing that. But we can apply it more broadly, too, if we think of it figuratively. Like, are there people that maybe are less skilled or have less advantages in life, and we take advantage of that? Are there people that we just kind of step over, and is it really any different than putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person? If we make life more difficult for someone who's worse off than us, then what's the difference? You might as well trip a blind person when they're walking down the street. Verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Now, this is kind of an interesting one. You kind of think that God would want us to show partiality to the poor, right? Like, shouldn't we? I mean, they're 
maybe a little more, if, if someone is poor, they, they maybe need an extra hand. Well, extending mercy to those in need is a given, absolutely part of the Israelites' way of life. But everyone has to be held responsible. And, and fairness actually is a, goes a long way. I'm in the middle of reading this book right now. It's called Just Mercy by a guy named Brian Stevenson. Wow. Like, this guy was a lawyer um, in the U.S., southern U.S., uh, representing people on death row. It is an unbelievable, mind-blowing book. And, and I'm reading this in, in reading Leviticus, and I'm thinking, yeah, you don't, have to, you don't have to show the poor special treatment. You just have to treat them fairly. Like, if you treat them fairly, he has nothing, he doesn't have a right book to write about. He could tell a funny story about his old car or something, but, but none, none of the rest of his life matters because everything he's writing about is how, how the poor and the marginalized and the disadvantaged are taken advantage of even more. They're not even given a fair shake in court. And so just treat everyone fairly. Just treat everyone fairly. And none of these systemic problems that our countries are dealing with would be an issue. Verse 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Slander is making a false spoken statement damaging to a person's reputation. Don't do it. Don't cut another person down. Verse 16 continues, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. God is calling his people to stop living in opposition to one another. And here is this basically catch-all law that's meant to cover every dark idea the human heart might conjure up. Well, this isn't on the list, so, so God's like, okay, don't do anything. Don't do anything that could harm your neighbor. Verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. It's an interesting turn here. It's not only our actions, but our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions. And again, I won't read the passage, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about that. He said, it's not just murder that's wrong, it's that anger that's breeding inside of you. Get rid of that too. All of these instructions were intended to prepare this people for life in the midst of moral chaos of the Canaanite culture that was seething with promiscuous sex and bringing children to sacrifices, burnt offerings to the god Moloch, and, and all kinds of awful stuff going on around them. And God was saying, do these things, live at peace with one another, reflect the image of God, being a blessing to the world around you. It might sound like a long list of rules, and truthfully, this is only a sampling from Leviticus, but who on earth wants to live in a world when other, anything other than this happens? None of us. Nobody here wants to live in a world where people just go out slandering one another and, and show favoritism to in-groups and steal and lie and deceive each other. No one wants to live in a world where that happens, where people stick out their leg and trip blind people on the street. None of us want to live in that world. And that's what God is saying. No one wants to live like this, so don't do it. And if none of you do it, then you won't have that world. But of all of these various laws we've looked at today, they all reach their climax in verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love the line from the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, I never could understand how it's possible to love one's neighbors. In my opinion, it is precisely one's neighbors that one cannot possibly love. It's fine to love someone far away, but to love your neighbor? No, that's just not going to happen. Well, I had this really interesting experience the other day. So Thursday afternoon, uh, my son Jude was playing volleyball, and I went to the school, and uh, so we're sitting on chairs on the sidelines, and about halfway through the game, this young mom comes in, and she has four little kids with her, and they all kind of traipse up, and they sit in the seats beside me. And uh, 
I found out a little later that two of them were her kids and she was watching two of them. They were the kids of the coach of the team. So they're yelling across the field and the, the court and whatever. And the guy who stepped beside me, this little grade two boy, was the friendliest little chap around. And so we got in this conversation. We talked about his scooter club that he's in. He asked what size my pants were. I, I was like, that's kind of an odd question, you know. Talked about the uniforms the kids were wearing. They were just chatting the whole time, just like talking and talking. On two different occasions, uh, the ball would like, come right at him, and I stuck my hand out once and saved him, and I stuck my foot out the second time. He looks at me, he's like, that was good. He said, you're two for two. <laughs> this kid was awesome. So we have this banter going back and forth, like the whole, uh, the whole game. And then at one point, he gets up, and he, he moves his chair closer to me. And then he sits like on the, the far side of the chair, and he leans his head into my shoulder. And he takes his little hand and puts it on my leg. I immediately look at the dad beside me. I'm like, you're watching. You're watching here. And I'm trying to get the mom's attention. And eventually, she kinda, kinda, we kind of chatted. And she's like, oh my gosh, he's just like the friendliest person. He just opens up to anyone. I'm like, well, evidently, I've known him for 15 minutes. And he's cuddling with me. But I was thinking about it after. That like, for this little guy, man, like there's something right about that. There's something so good about that. Or for him, he's just like, I like this person. I can trust this person. I want to be close to this person. Or for me and for everyone else, it's like, something's wrong with this. Stay away. Get up and run away. Like, why? Like, why? Like, something is lost in us along the way. And I'm not saying we should, you know, ignore, you know, wisdom along the way. I'm just saying that in this little boy, I thought, like, this is how we're created to live where we can trust each other, where it's safe to be with each other, where we don't have to live with this fear all the time. And unfortunately, almost all of us lose that along the way. And it's really sad. Well, this is the first time in the Bible that the word love takes the form of a command. The word love is mentioned a couple of times, but it's never commanded. But here God says, love your neighbor as yourself. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of whether it's easy or whether they deserve it or whether we feel like it or whether it brings any benefit to us. Now, I titled this morning's sermon, Neighbors and Aliens, because my version of the Bible is a little older. It's translated since now the Bible say like neighbors and foreigners, right? Aliens just sounds cooler, don't you agree? This has nothing to do with extraterrestrials though. Um, it's about foreigners. And so we have this command, love your neighbor as yourself. But in case you feel like that's just the people close to you, uh, by the end of the verse in, uh, chapter 19, verse 34, the foreigner or the alien residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Oh, it's awesome. The foreigner must be treated like one of you because you were a foreigner. And every single one of us was a foreigner at some point. A generation ago, two generations ago, ten generations ago, doesn't matter. And we all have this, this calling, this command to not only love our neighbor as ourselves, but to love our, the foreigner as ourselves because, as the Bible teaches us, the foreigner is our neighbor. They are one of us. And we try to get away with this all we can. Eugene Peterson says that love is one of the slipperiest words in the language. There's no other word in our society more messed up, misunderstood, perverted, and misused as the word love. Complicating things even further, it's a word terribly vulnerable to cliché. 
I mean, just look up any matter of number of memes on love. I mean, this is what you get. This is what love is. This cat. Let me count the ways I love you. Now, there are some good ones. I found this next one. I like this one, actually. This summarizes my love life. I'm the guy in blue. Next slide. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we can have fun with it, right? We can have fun with it. But this kind of love that we're being called to, it's not, it's not something cheesy with a little cat. It's not something just to be a joke about. This is like real love that impacts real people's lives. This brief five-word line from Leviticus is certainly that book's most quoted verse, and in truth, one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. Whether you go to church or not, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Centuries after God spoke these words to Moses, Jesus echoed them. In Matthew chapter 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, one religious group, the Pharisees, another religious group, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Oh, say, okay, so take all of these books, the beginning of our Bible, all of these books, throw them all together. There's tons of laws. We're looking at a couple dozen here this morning. There are hundreds of them. Which of them is the most important? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Your entire set of scriptures, everything that you build your faith on, hangs on these two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Right here in the middle of Leviticus, this boring book we all skip over, this list of various laws that we just skim over because who cares about it, is the most important piece. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. They go hand in hand. What does it tell us about God? That this is the most wonderful of all words, the most significant of all commands, is found in the middle of a book like Leviticus. What does it tell us? That he knows that if you want that love, if you want that most important thing, it's not going to be easy. There are a lot of things that you're going to have to commit to in order to get that prize. Now, lots of people want that. They want the prize at the end, they want the saying, love your neighbor as yourself, without all the hard work. But God says, all of this hard work, if you do all of this, and right in the middle, that's when you're going to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. All of these various laws, in one way or another, are expressions of what it means to love your neighbor. They're specific. Eugene Peterson again says, if love could be imposed on a community, it would at least be manageable if we could be forced to love one another. But the love that is first commanded in Leviticus has to be unforced, personal, and freely given by the members of the community. So a couple of thoughts in closing here. The list of various laws does continue beyond verse 18. Why did I stop here? Two reasons. Number one, the next verse is about the mating of different kinds of animals. Weird. Number two, it ends powerfully with a reason to live this way. I am the Lord. Okay, good. Let's stop there. We all know there are more laws. Go ahead. Read them. You got all week. I am the Lord. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It starts with him. So we're close to this passage from 1 John 4, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. 
This command to love is just, again, to reflect the image of God out in the world around us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love the brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so this is a big part of what we're doing here, of why we are a church. We're a response to this expression from Miroslav Volf, I need a community of fellow believers with whom to celebrate a vision of life that revolves around love of God and neighbor. At the end of the day, that's why we're here, to celebrate this vision, to orient our lives around the story of Jesus, loving God, loving neighbors. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to pray. You're welcome to linger in this space for prayer in the first couple of pews here. You're also invited to prepare your food and get it into the potluck. And please, those of you who came with a child, go get them. They're upstairs. Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather together as a community of faith to do what we've just read about, to celebrate a vision of life that revolves around a love of you and a love of one another. Our neighbors here in this church community, our neighbors in the community around us, where we live and shop and work and play, but also our neighbors that are further off, those foreigners who are to be treated like native-borns because we're all foreigners in some way. So God, you've called us to this place specifically this morning where we can learn with one another, we can practice this, we can show grace to one another, and then we can take this kind of love for neighbor out into the world around us. And so God, so God, we ask that you would go with us today as we sit around tables and enjoy good food. I pray that we'd all feel the love of this community and that that would just inspire us to, to keep spiraling it on outward further and further in our lives throughout the week. So go with us today, we ask. Bless the food we're going to share around these tables today. In Christ's name, amen.